<clears throat> we can turn back to the chapter we read, Nehemiah chapter 1. And I would just like to think about the chapter. And G.I. Packer is one of the few Christian authors whose books have sold over a million copies. And since that is the case, he's obviously been a person who's influenced a lot of people. And I suppose it would be interesting to ask uh, Packer who influenced him. And you may be surprised to know that one of the men who influenced him was Nehemiah. Indeed, Packer says in one of his books, when he's imagining meeting Nehemiah in heaven, and he says about that possible meeting, what I would like him to know is that during the time that I have been a Christian, he has helped me enormously more perhaps than any other Bible character apart from the Lord Jesus himself. And I suppose an endorsement like that should make us ask ourselves what was so special about Nehemiah? Even to ask ourselves what does this chapter tell us about Nehemiah? It's not like the incident where Moses met God because God appeared to him. It's not like the incident where Isaiah met God because he saw the Lord high and lifted up in a vision in the temple. It's not like all the occasions where Abram met with God because God appeared to him and said something to him. But in this chapter, God doesn't appear to Nehemiah. And yet there's a lot of things in it that would help us, I would say, when we draw near to God. He gives us a wonderful description of God there in verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. That's something useful for us to remember when we speak to God. Often when we meet another person we would like to compliment them wouldn't we to say something to them about them that's good should we not do the same with God after all that's what praise is isn't it praise is complimenting somebody for what they're good at 
And when we draw near to the Most High, surely we're obligated to say something complimentary to him. God tells us that's how we should approach him. It's not right to approach him and say nothing about him. Doing something like that would just indicate we're not thinking about what we're doing. So it does say a lot about God, this chapter that we read. Maybe this passage was one of the passages that helped Packer put together his book, Knowing God. Don't know that, if that's the case or not, but we do know he wrote that book. The book's also got a lot to say about prayer, doesn't it? This chapter's got a prayer, but it's only one of nine prayer times of prayer mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. He was obviously a man who thought prayer was very important. The book also tells us quite a bit about leadership. I mean, what kind of leadership did Israel need at that particular moment? Well, Nehemiah is the man. He also tells us that we should be ready to get involved. When he got the news from his brother about things in Jerusalem, he didn't decide to set up a committee. He just went ahead and did something. Did what he could do. History, we're told by many people, is if we ignore it, we repeat it. But history's got more than that to tell us. If we look at history, we'll see how people cope with crises in the past. What it was that enabled them to go through whatever their crisis was. That's true of secular history. We can learn a lot. But it's certainly true of sacred history. Why are we told all these details? I mean, this particular account looks as if it comes from Nehemiah's diary because it's in the first person. You can see that from verse 1. Now it happened as I was in Susa. So it's, it's not from his diary, it's, it's his autobiography. It says again there in the same verse, verse 2, I asked them, concerning the Jews. And in verse 4, as soon as I heard, I sat down. So it's, uh, he's telling us information that he thinks is important for us to hear. But it's not just 
Nehemiah who thinks it's important for us to hear it. I mean, Nehemiah's been dead for two and a half thousand years. God wants us to hear what Nehemiah wrote down. As Nehemiah was putting all this together, he was being guided by the Holy Spirit. So I wonder what God is saying to us through this book. Is he saying to us, pray for men to appear who are like Nehemiah? What is he saying to us? You can do something like Nehemiah within your sphere of influence. But whatever... God is speaking in the book. And he's not just giving us some details from long ago. He's telling us what he can do through one man. And therefore, he is to some extent telling us what he can do through us through us as individuals. All of us can do nothing. But none of us should do nothing. All of us can think of what everybody else should do. But Nehemiah tells us that each of us should think about what we can do. So I'd just like us to think about this chapter. Who was Nehemiah? Well, we're not told very much about him. And that's interesting, isn't it? Don't know much about his background. We're told to his father what his father's name was. But all he proceeds to say about his family history is that he tells us that in verse 6, I and my father's house have sinned. That's a summary of his pedigree, we might say. It'd be a strange thing to put on a CV, wouldn't it? But God expects it in the CV of every person that he will use. Indeed, if it's not there, we're guaranteed not to get the job. He also tells us he was a cupbearer to the king. And that was a, a dangerous job. More ways than one. It was dangerous, of course, in case somebody put poison into the cup. Because if that happened, Nehemiah would be the first to die. It was also dangerous from another point of view, because the Persian emperors were seldom sober.
and how he managed to survive in that environment. Only God could have helped him. Cupbearer, too, was more than just somebody who tasted the drinks. He became a kind of counsellor. He had to be ready with an opinion. Always. He never knew when the emperor was going to ask him for his opinion. He might ask him, or he might ask another counsellor. But he didn't know when he would be asked. So he had to be ready. Always know what to say. That's all we know about him. He's obviously got a burden for Jerusalem. But we don't know whether he had seen it or when this chapter starts. We do know that he was going to spend several years there because he discovered what a lot of people would have to discover that he was the answer to his own prayers. He prayed that God would help Israel. And God sent him to help Israel. That's one of the dangers about prayer. We ask God to do something. And God says, I'll enable you to do it. So anyway, I just want to think about the situation he discovered. And the reaction he had and the prayer he offered. The situation he discovered. He tells us there in verse 2 that one of his brothers came with certain men from Judah. We're not told why they had gone to Judah, but anyway, they had come back to Susa, which is in the south of Iraq. It was the winter palaces of the emperors of Persia and they come up come back and um, Nehemiah well he just asked them how are things in Judah he didn't have emails in those days or satellite TV that could beam into the rooms in the palace exactly what was happening in the provinces far away They had to wait months for regular information. And anyway, Hanani, well, he just tells Nehemiah that the people there in Jerusalem, they're in great trouble. But that's not all he says. They're in shame. And why would we um, think they should be in shame? I mean, there's a difference between being in trouble and being in shame. Trouble might be just because of what others are causing. But shame, that goes in the other direction, doesn't it? 
is because they were not who they should have been. After all, a hundred years before this, God had restored them from captivity. He had delivered them incredibly from Babylon after the Persians had defeated Babylon. The Lord in his own incredible manner arranged for the king of Persia to set all the Jews free. God himself, of course, had said that before they even went into the exile. And he said that when they would be restored, that the opportunity was there for them to live according to God's blessing. They went back to Jerusalem and they started to build, rebuild the city. We can read about that in the book of Haggai and Zechariah. And they became despondent. And they had a wee boost when Haggai and Zechariah came along and they, and they um, resumed working on restoring the city. But that didn't last too long either. And here they are a hundred years later and nothing has happened. Things are so bad the two essential things for a city are not even there. There's no walls and there's no gates. What kind of city would that be in the ancient world? Not surprising that they were ashamed. And it's a very sad description, isn't it? To be the followers of the God of heaven and to be living without his power, without the signs of his presence. And when they are absent, the appropriate response is to be ashamed. When the psalmist asked in the psalm we were singing, where is your God? Well, where is he? Where is the omnipresent God? This introduction here in verses 1 to 4, or 1 to 3, sorry, tells us the importance of accurate information, doesn't it? We can't go on to point 2 until we understand point one. And the point of point one is the provision of accurate information. To live in the world of reality, not in the world where we hope things are like this or like that, but the world of reality. And as we apply that to ourselves, what is the equivalent of the city of God in today's world? 
What is the equivalent of Jerusalem? Well, I suspect it's a visible church. I mean, a city is an organized structure. It's something you can see. Hanani, he obviously saw what was it? Not in Jerusalem. They had no wall. And they had no gates. And the visible church. We can see it. Sometimes. Well, more often than not. When I see the problem of the visible church. I escape into the invisible church. The invisible church, of course, is God's people, the entirety of them in heaven and earth. A number that no one can count eventually. And my escape into the invisible church just becomes escapism. Accurate information around us what is the visible church like today? In decline and on the edge of disappearance. That's where we are. Another couple of generations if things keep going the way they're going, what will be here? That's the information. We don't have to wait two months or whatever it was that Nehemiah had to wait for Hanani to come. We know it already. Decline. Bible-loving Scotland. That's a long time ago. So we have the information. So did Nehemiah. What was his reaction? Well, we're told it there in verse 4. It was immediate. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Right there in front of the delegation who had come to him with the news. He's got no strength to keep standing. The news that he hears just drains from him his energy. And he weeps and mourns. And he tells us that this lasted for days. And he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His response must tell us, mustn't it, what his priorities were. But I think they also tell us what his piety was. Priorities, well, in a certain sense, that's how you arrange your diary. What are the important things to get sorted out? 
But of all we have our priorities. And not much might happen. Piety has to go along with it. And Nehemiah's piety comes out, doesn't it? And he continues fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And as we think about his prayer, what can, how would we summarize his prayer there? Well, I think three words summarize it. Painful. But it was paramount. And it was also preparatory for something. The obvious thing about pain is that a person feels it. There's no such thing as pain that's not felt. That goes for physical pain, emotional pain, and spiritual pain. Spiritual pain reveals itself in his response there, weeping and mourning for days on end. The one thing you were not allowed to be in the court of the Persian Empire was sad. What do we think of God leading his future servant to be sad in the presence of the emperor? I don't know what to make of it. But it would certainly be a first, wouldn't it? Nobody would go into the emperor's presence with this kind of burden. It was painful. And it was paramount. Apparently, a lot of people, when they're under stress, they eat more. Nehemiah, when he's under stress, he eats less. Something takes hold of him. He stops. He's fasting. And his initial prayer is not so much about the long-term remedy that God is going to provide. His initial prayer, as we can see from the end of it, is concerned that he would give God would give success and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he's praying that the next time he sees the emperor, God will help him. How long did he pray for? Because he tells us. He tells us when he started praying in the month of Kislev, which is the equivalent of our November and December. He tells us when he saw the emperor. He tells us it in verse 1 of chapter 2. He saw him in the month Nisan, 
which is March or April. So he's probably been praying for four months about this one day when he's going to see the emperor. Obviously for Nehemiah, a five-minute prayer before the event was not enough. I wonder why he prayed for three to four months. Well, can't give you an answer to that one. But maybe Nehemiah would agree with Moody Stewart's comment that we're to pray until we know we've been heard. And if he knew that, that would have given him great confidence. That's his reaction. Instantaneous. But you also get this a sense that it's increasing. The number of times that I have started something, and I suspect it's true of all of us, the number of times we started something and a fortnight later it becomes a distant memory. Resolutions to be more spiritual, more dedicated, peter out. But not with Nehemiah. It became more intense as he went along. Not surprising, that, is it, that Packer thought he was a kind of inspiration. Then there's a prayer that he offered, very briefly. We can think about its intensity there in verse 5. The first word, the smallest word, but actually the word that says the most. Oh. It wouldn't be right to say that every prayer should have the word oh in it. But it would be right to say that every prayer should have the spirit of the word O in it. God only hears intense prayers. Prayers that we are desperate, he answers. Prayers that take hold of him. And say to him, if you don't do it, your kingdom will be gone in Scotland. We should say that to him, shouldn't we? And say it to him with feeling. If you don't do it, your kingdom will disappear. intensity we don't go to God to have a chat we go to him the great God of heaven prayer is a request to God to act it's 
prayers reverent. Great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. As I mentioned earlier, we compliment him. Tell him what he's good at. It's not manipulation. It's worship. Take time to think how we describe him. Are we saying the same things today as we said every other day for the past 40 years? Without thinking? His prayers got entreaty, isn't it? He begs. You know, in verse 6 there, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. I mean, I mean, these words would suggest that Nehemiah thinks that perhaps God hasn't been listening and hasn't been looking. But it's striking, isn't it, that he can say to God, listen to my prayer and look to me as I pray. Surely that description implies authenticity. He's not afraid for God to look at him. He's a sinner. He confesses his sins. But he says to God, listen to me and look at me. I'm in distress. He says to God, basically there in verse 6, look at me and see how I am praying day and night. The only person that can say that, of course, is somebody who is praying day and night. Then there's confession of sin. And we can see his confession is communal, historical, and specific. It's communal because he concludes himself amongst the people of Israel. It's historical because it refers to past generations. And it's specific because he says we have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you gave us. And he also points out with regard to his sin that it is very corrupt. I mean that's what sin does, doesn't it? It corrupts. It doesn't do anything else. Sin corrupts. It's dangerous. But it also is defiling. We're worse after we sin than we were before it. It's corrupting. And he confesses that to God. 
And he also says to God in his prayer, remember your promises. And he spells out one of them. He tells the God who doesn't forget what his promises are. As I was reading this prayer, I had to ask myself, when did I last say to God a specific promise? And just say to him, you said this. And that's enough, isn't it? You said this. It's sad to have a prayer with no promises in it. Perhaps it's not even a prayer. Because the things that God has said he would give us are mentioned in his promises. He also mentions in his prayer that they've been redeemed. And of course, redemption means that God had bought them to be his possession. He owned them. They were redeemed from something, redeemed by something, and redeemed to something. They were redeemed from bondage, and they were redeemed by power. And they were redeemed to be God's possession. (laughs) When he's saying to God, isn't he? Why did you buy us? Because that's what redemption is. Bought with a price. And I suppose we could say to God, Why did you buy us? Why did Jesus pay the penalty? Why did Jesus show his power? What does Jesus want, our great Redeemer? Why did he redeem us? He redeemed us to serve him. Nehemiah is aware of others who are praying and that's a good thing to remember when we pray we're not in the battle alone and he has a beautiful way of describing them there in verse 11 the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name he could have said to the prayer of your servants who fear your name And that would have been true. But the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. They had joy in fearing God. That must have come by experience. I mean there is a fear of God that brings no joy. But there is a fear of God that brings joy. And he also points out in verse 11 that any answers he gets will be just because God is merciful. 
For then, since his tender mercies are above all his other works, we should expect him to show mercy. We need mercy. But mercy is God's normal way of doing things. So his prayer is, well, it's certainly challenging, but it's also eye-opening. And we have to ask ourselves, surely, how do I pray? Because Nehemiah has written it down for our benefit. His prayers were answered. He's giving to us a prayer that was answered. A process that was answered. God had put something on his heart. His prayer reveals that. I'll close with just one thing I read from Wearsby. He can put things in a nutshell. And he said this, when God puts a burden on your heart, don't try to escape it. For if you do, you may miss the blessing that he planned for you. Just think what would have happened to Nehemiah if he hadn't prayed. Think what would have happened to Israel if he hadn't prayed. And think what would have happened to Israel if he hadn't done what he could do. Shall we pray?